Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Goshal. And I'm Jared Arandu. Every week we sit down with a master of the design industry. We really hope you guys have been learning quite a bit. Today we're going to learn even more. We're so excited about today's guest. Who is it? We're speaking with August De Los Reyes. He's the head of design and research here at Pinterest. He's going to tell us how a personal life event actually helped shape the way he approaches design today. He's going to define inclusive design for us. And he's going to tell us about some of the roles he's investing in here at Pinterest. Hey, have you guys commented on YouTube yet? Have you liked any of our videos? If you're learning, if you're enjoying this podcast, wouldn't it be fun if you told us? <laughs> tell us. Tell us. We'll be right back. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. August, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have this discussion today. So first question, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't think is so clear to other people? Well, um, I'd never claim that something is solely clear to me, mm -hmm. but um, one thing that I believe strongly is that uh, design is a fundamental human drive, just like learning and curiosity. Uh, while I think design is um, bounded as a profession today, if I was to draw an analogy to, say, learning uh, or education, there was a time in human history where it was considered um, a practice for the elite or a certain few. Um, but today we find that education is a fundal hum fundamental human drive. And I think design is something similar where everyone has this need to change the circumstances in which they live uh, to live a better life or to live the vision of their own life. And I think that is the act of design. And to further that sort of analogy, uh, if you take the idea of literacy, again, literacy was something that was relegated to just a few small groups. Mm -hmm. And today it's considered uh, something that everyone should have a right to or have access to. And I think the design literacy is the same thing. Is design literacy something that you would, if you were put in charge of it, would you emphasize it earlier in school? Um, would it be part of a curriculum of standard ed education in, in the country? Oh, yes, yeah. yes. I, I think it should parallel uh, literacy uh, in the literary sense as well. Um, the design is um, really approach to uh, answering questions, but in a way that is through action rather than through words. What would you be focusing on in that education system? Like if this was, if design literacy was a thing taught in schools, like what would you be focusing on? Um, I think uh, I would focus on the act of design. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, we all design, everyone designs, uh, whether it's within the bounds of what we consider the formal techniques of uh, being a professional designer uh, or not. Uh, and I think that to instill uh, design literacy at an early age, it's through action. It's about uh, 
analyzing or diagnosing a condition that you're in, mm -hmm. uh, what you want it to be, and how to create the path to get from the current state to that envisioned future state. Um, one, one metaphor that I use is cooking. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we all go home and, and cook for ourselves, but that doesn't mean that we're all professional chefs. Mm -hmm. And I think the, there is a level of deep curiosity and uh, technical expertise that for now uh, separates uh, professional designers uh, from uh, those who aren't. But um, in the same way as cooking is to professional chefs, it's an act that we all do, uh, which again addresses the fundamental uh, need for nutrition. Um, but I think the, the more we make uh, the techniques and the approaches and the thinking of design available to everyone, uh, that it'll help address this human drive. So back in uh, 2013, you had a major life event yes. happen to you that sounds like changed your approach and thinking about how to design, what design is, and how you now approach it. Uh, what is that life event? Oh, well, um, the life event that happened is I broke my back, uh, and I had a spinal cord injury, uh, which uh, one of the outcomes is um, I navigate through the world mostly in my wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And uh, this got me obsessed with uh, what the idea of accessibility uh, is and what it means through a design lens. Um, and I came across something that was fascinating. The, uh, the United uh, Nations um, World Health Organization had changed the definition of disability from the so-called medical model to the social model. In other words, uh, rather than thinking of disability as uh, an outcome of some sort of medical phenomenon, uh, rather uh, it is a mismatch between a person's ability and the environment, which is designed, uh, um, the, they live in. So um, one example uh, is um, being able to get in and out of a building. If all buildings had ramps, uh, then people in wheelchairs uh, would be able to uh, access all buildings. So in other words, uh, the fact that some buildings are inaccessible is designed. So if you take that logic and you scale it broadly, then what it suggests is the disability is actually an outcome of design. The, uh, the disability uh, is designed uh, in the society that we live. Does that make sense? That, yeah, that actually does yeah. make sense. But I also think what's, what's interesting about your story is there are probably very few people that are professional designers um, and who design every day deliberately, consciously, knowing that that's their work, which is what you do, um, that have been, that have this moment in time for your life event, mm -hmm. and then there was a before and an after, meaning before you broke your back, yes. you didn't, you probably didn't ignore accessibility, but you probably thought about it pretty differently than you do now, right? Um, so you've got you've got this perspective most people in the world that do design don't have. Um, how, how would you get people to think about 
accessibility, not necessarily disability, although we could go there, but accessibility just generally um, as designers today? Like, how would you get them to think about bringing that consciousness into their work? Well, first, let me continue this line of logic, and then I'll sure. I'll get back to that. So, um, if if we accept the notion that disability is actually a shortcoming of designed environments, uh, then we can extend that uh, to, uh, say, other social uh, constraints like marginalized communities, uh, gender bias, literacy, age, uh, and even beyond that, the, uh, you could extend the argument into a critique around sustainability. Um, so pulling back to uh, your original question, um, before my life event, uh, I was still a proponent of universal design, and I did think that accessibility is just an essential element of good design. Um, but the shift in that belief uh, through my own experience uh, actually challenged that, uh, that when you compare um, accessibility to actually designing for a certain ability difference uh, from the get-go, uh, then you find that there's a lot more opportunities for innovation. And in this pursuit of what's dubbed inclusive design, there's actually a long history of innovations, everyday innovations, uh, that were uh, started with the intent to address um, a person with a disability. Uh, one example is the telephone. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell invented it to help deaf people. Um, another is uh, the keyboard. Uh, the, it was invented in Italy uh, for someone who had a love affair with a countess who was blind and uh, she couldn't write letters legibly, so he invented the, the keyboard. Um, even the remote control uh, was originally invented for uh, people who had difficulty uh, back in the day standing up, crossing the living room to change the channel on their television. But today, a remote control is a de facto feature of uh, any TV that we buy. Uh, so uh, reframing the design intent to focus on um, a difference in ability actually benefits everyone. Uh, and going back to the notion of ramps to the building, I'm not the only one who uses the ramp to this building. People who bike into work find it easier uh, to bring their bikes in. People with deliveries uh, use the ramp as well. So the notion is if we design uh, for the ability difference, it actually benefits everyone. So something I find very interesting is um, you, you played a huge role in bringing that kind of thinking to Microsoft. And Microsoft is a huge organization, thousands, tens of thousands of employees, right? Um, but something that we actually brought up in our conversation with Kat was Microsoft has this legacy of you can configure the experience to your particular needs, mm -hmm. right? Um, but obviously now there's a lot of software coming out of Microsoft and the, the, the question was how do you bring that kind of thinking to software, right? Now given the experience that you had and um, 
you know, the, 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 frame, the reframing that you were trying to push through. What did those conversations look like with stakeholders at Microsoft? Like, what were you telling them to say, hey guys, there is a slight, slight variation in thinking that we should have when we build software for the people we're, we're, we're servicing? So uh, uh, Microsoft, first of all, uh, you mentioned CAT. It was a group effort uh, um, where CAT uh, and Albert Shum, the VP of design, and I were all philosophically aligned that, uh, that this was just good. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the shift to designing uh, with um, audiences with differences in ability uh, was actually pretty profound. It seems like a small thing, um, but when we went through our product development process, uh, we shunned the idea that we design for the majority and that's the ideal solution mm -hmm. and that accessibility is an add-on uh, or uh, something that happens after the product is designed. Uh, but if we design uh, for uh, those instances from the get-go, uh, then not only is it good for those audiences, but it benefits everyone else. Now with uh, an organization as large as that, uh, the best way to uh, promote the idea uh, is through action. Uh, I think that everyone was uh, philosophically aligned that this is a good thing. And the best way to uh, show how to do it is simply by doing it. I'm reminded of a Buckminster Fuller quote, uh, and I'm just gonna paraphrase here. But he said, um, if you want to teach people a new way of thinking, uh, don't bother teaching them. Instead, give them the, the tools that they would be using if they were already thinking in that way. And from that, Kat developed the Inclusive Design Toolkit. And uh, um, building off of that, I also introduced tools and processes on the team I was managing to start thinking in that new way as well. What were some of those process shifts? Oh, uh, one of the most challenging ones is uh, we decided to do a user research study where all the participants in the study were deaf. And uh, we had a lot, of, a lot of new things that we had learned uh, but really the insights that we gathered actually helped us think of some very interesting features that we introduced into the platform. Do you remember the first product or project where you applied uh, your, the, the new inclusive design methodologies that you were socializing at the time? Like, do you remember what that first project was? Um, I can't talk about it. You can't talk about it, okay. That's fine, we'll leave that on camera. That's all right. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I'd like to touch on the word diversity. Okay. Uh, I think the well, this theme has come up quite a bit. I think it's a misrepresented, maybe misunderstood uh, um, word in at least the tech industry. Uh, what is the word, like when you use the word diversity, what are some of the things that come to mind? What are you thinking about? Well, it's interesting that we started off with accessibility because that seems to be a loaded word too. Yes, yeah. Especially from a design standpoint, the terms like accessibility, sustainability, 
diversity mm-hmm. uh, all come with their connotative baggage. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, I just take it in a very literal sense of uh, diversity is about a spectrum of thoughts, experiences, approaches, and it's actually a great thing for design. Uh, again, let me propose just a kind of simple linear argument. In product development today, it's just understood that there's diversity of expertise, that we have people from multiple functions, uh, design, engineering, program management, marketing, you name it. That that is actually diversity right there. Uh, and no one questions it. The, it requires different sets of expertise to produce a great experience. Well, what happens is if we look at other pivots of diversity, particularly within design, it actually opens up more opportunities for innovation and for better, better outcomes. And I can get really specific here. There are three things that it does. The first is that it forces people to prepare better. Uh, because you know that if there are different, different points of view, different life experiences, uh, different sets of knowledge, that you, you prepare for engagement with other team members better. The second is that you anticipate that there will be differences. And this ties back to uh, just being a strong designer, designer or design leader in an organization. Um, it forces you to uh, clarify rationale for design thought uh, and for the decisions that you make. And because uh, there's um, diversity uh, um, anticipating that there will be different points of view is a good thing. And then finally, it sets the expectation that it'll require effort to come to consensus around something or, or uh, at least agreement, uh, uh, agreement to disagree. But um, it sets the expectation uh, that there's a greater effort required to bring a group uh, to consensus. And one of the ways the design as a discipline is evolving is that design is further becoming a facilitator uh, across different disciplines. And so um, by having diversity, whether uh, it's uh, ethnic or gender or age, you name, you name it, the, it actually makes the team stronger and makes the outcome more, uh, more innovative. How should teams be measuring their level of diversity? Like, is it, is it on a company level? Is it outcome-based? Is it reflection of your audience? Like, I'm just thinking about diversity has come up as a major topic in the industry, and there's a lot of people saying that um, it's not, there, there is not enough diversity in the teams, especially in the tech industry, right? And I want to know like, what you are focusing on particularly and how you measure it within your teams. Um, well, this might seem like a cop-out, but I don't. I don't measure it. Um, I think the diversity is actually a principle, and the outcome is inclusion, that there's an inclusive environment, that there's a respectful environment for very differing points of view. Um, that's not to say that other functions don't measure uh, diversity in their, their own ways, uh, but um, uh, if the principle, if the means uh, is diversity and the outcome is inclusion, 
then those are principles uh, by which we uh, make sure that uh, the team is run, that the standards of management and leadership uh, are held up to, and of course, uh, the, the, the product and the experiences that we create uh, reflect that. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Of course, we're inspired by our design program, which is over 60 years old. But today, IBM employs more than 1,300 professional designers, and we've certified more than 60,000 IBMers in the practices of IBM design thinking. The result? Diverse teams working more closely than ever with our clients, their users, and our partners to create modern solutions that provide differentiated, human-centered outcomes to the world. We'd love to share this story more closely with you. And I hope to see you soon at one of our IBM studios worldwide. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Netflix, and Airbnb. I work with remote teams all the time, and I found that keeping a healthy dialogue is really important. Without it, building strong work relationships gets a lot harder, and that leads to poor collaboration. I've also found that prototypes are a great way for me to show my full vision for a design, and this helps cut down a lot of back and forth. Envision makes all of this really easy. You can rapidly prototype your designs and collaborate across every stage of your project, taking your ideas from concept to code. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com slash high resolution for three months free. So after Microsoft, you came to Pinterest to lead up the design and research efforts here, right? I'm curious what attracted you to the role and what did you think you can bring to this team? Uh, well, originally uh, I joined Pinterest just to join the design team. And uh, given how quickly startups evolve, my role expanded as well. But the reason why I joined was I'd been an avid Pinterest user before. And there was something just very positive about it ex its experience, that there's something playful, uh, something productive, uh, something uh, that actually had real impact into my day-to-day -day life. And compared to uh, my previous role, um, I saw that there was something profound uh, that Pinterest could become. And that's why I ended up here. What is that something profound? One thing that always fascinated me about Pinterest, both before joining the company and afterwards, is why is it so popular? What happened those years ago where suddenly thousands and thousands of people 
we're joining and using Pinterest every day. In other words, what is the latent unmet need of the Pinterest fulfilled? Well, looking at this from both a design and a research perspective, uh, I kind of took a very academic approach. And what I believe uh, Pinterest does is it actually empowers people uh, to not only play with possibilities that they have in their own lives, but to actually take action. And going back to this notion of how would I instill design literacy and how do you promote uh, um, designerly approaches to solving problems, the act of design is just as important as the, the, the design, uh, the, the thought of design or design thinking. Um, and I think that Pinterest actually enables that. Uh, it presents people with a playful, exploratory way to look at a variety of possibilities for their lives, and it helps people accomplish those. So when we say that Pinterest is a catalog of ideas that help people discover and do the things they love, um, it is literally that. Uh, it is just uh, uh, an almost sublime spectrum of possibilities that people could actually act on in their day-to-day -day lives. And that, in, a, in, in its most literal sense, is the design of their lives. And that's what drew me here. So you joined Pinterest as a designer. You evolved into the role of, of leading the design and research efforts. Um, when day one of that role, through six months, what did you prioritize? Well, um, day one was, I prioritized understanding what the needs of the design team was, uh, what the needs were. Um, uh, as, as a design manager and as a leader uh, joining any new team, part of it is just diagnosing or evaluating the situation, looking at what works, what's not working, what could uh, be improved, and that was day one. What do you spend your time doing now? Um, right now, it's, um, I spend the time uh, structuring the design organization to be more durable in, in the sense that uh, in a startup, as, as everyone knows, things change rapidly. Uh, and I think that there needs to be a balance that's struck uh, between uh, things that are durable and long-lasting in terms of the practice of design and also being more flexible and adapting to change quickly. And so right now, um, I'm working with our design and research leaders uh, to come up with processes and structures and approaches uh, to make sure that there's that right balance of the two. Can you share any of those? Yes, uh, one, one example is uh, the notion of uh, distributed uh, decision-making. And um, I want to credit uh, uh, Peter Merholtz and uh, Christine Skinner uh, for their work around um, designing design organizations. And it's funny that uh, independently I arrived at this approach that matches up with theirs. But there's a notion that, well, let me start, let me start uh, about the role of being a design leader. I'd say years ago, uh, there's this 
almost unreal expectation. The, the person who's leading design or who's the head of design is at the same time someone who is a strong, creative visionary, who is also an excellent people manager, who is also great at operations. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the habit of um, functional teams, uh, particularly in relatively new disciplines like design, to draft off of uh, structures and approaches that have existed uh, for, for decades. Uh, and as design has become, uh, has, has, has joined the proverbial table, uh, gotten a seat at the proverbial table uh, more and more, uh, the notion of teasing out the operational aspects of design from uh, design leadership uh, is more and more commonplace. We see this in the role of producers or design program managers. Every company has a name for it. But um, having someone who is accountable for operational efficiency and making sure there's clear cross-functional communications mm -hmm. is teased apart from the rest of design leadership. And one of the models that we're adopting here is actually teasing apart the creative vision aspect of it from the people management. Uh, so that there's someone who's accountable uh, for uh, making good product judgment, uh, making the right product calls, and this actually enables us to um, move very quickly in terms of the product. And separate from that are people, designers, uh, who are very good at people management, because in a sense, that's a design problem as well, mm -hmm. to design an environment and an organization where people do their best work. And I think among all of those disciplines, whether it's operational, managerial, or creative, uh, the, in order to have credibility and authority in each of those, the person needs to be a designer, whatever that means. And I think that's different for every organization. Uh, but it, it lends credibility uh, and also clear accountability for each of the three. Yeah. Are there anything, in your opinion, if you think designers are not doing stuff today that might be uh, costing them, uh, say, influence inside of their company or credibility uh, inside of their company? Like, are they just ignoring parts of their job, generally speaking, across the industry? I think today there's still uh, some teams that take a very defensive point of view mm. around design, that design should be owned by designers. Uh, and what I found is the, a kind of counterintuitive but very productive approach is that the more we share design, we, we open up participation in the act of design, regardless of function, it actually makes design much more effective. So we reached out to our community and we asked them for stuff that's burning up inside them, what questions do they have? And they gave us a few questions that we'd like to ask you. Okay, so the first question is, um, how do you explain the role of design to people at Pinterest? So there's no silver bullet. Uh, I guess the follow-up question is, uh, who's the audience that I'm explaining the role of design to? Mm -hmm. uh, but if I were to come up with a general uh, answer to that. And I've often asked people, especially designers, what is the unique contribution that design brings to the product development process? And I hear answers that 
I, I'm sure we've all heard before, like it's problem solving or it's creativity. And none of those is unique. Every function is both creative and is problem solving. And I think what design's unique contribution to product development is, is bringing in culture or what I call cultural equity to the experience. In other words, these are non-financial, non-functional attributes uh, of the experience that design brings in, whether they're the obvious cues like ornamentation uh, or uh, the display of information. Uh, but then there are also very subtle uh, cultural cues that are brought in that are interpreted as tone or status uh, or uh, positioning the product and the placement uh, of the context in which people are using it. The second question is, how is the design team organized at Pinterest? The, the design team at Pinterest is organized uh, um, both to be uh, durable and flexible. Uh, in other words, um, it's a kind of hub-and-spoke model uh, and a term that's been floating around is a centralized partnership. Uh, I think uh, previously, in the, particularly in the 20th century, there are two uh, main models. One is a centralized design organization, uh, but one of the shortcomings of that is a kind of us versus them uh, situation or the ivory tower. And then there's the decentralized model where uh, designers sit uh, with their respective teams. Uh, but what that does is creates isolation and sometimes feature fatigue where uh, designers are working uh, on a, a, a project for a really, really long time. And what we're trying to do is uh, this uh, centralized partnership where there's a hub uh, of designers that we engage in community activities, design community activities, but at the same time, so on paper, uh, we're centralized, but the way we act is decentralized. Uh, but we reach out and we build bridges with other teams and we'll make sure there's a lot of uh, strong cross-functional uh, interplay between design and the other functions. And here at Printerist, uh, we call that cross-functional communication, uh, collaboration, knitting. Knitting. Uh, yes, nice. that's our... That's our own word for it. Words so on brand too. Yeah. Okay, so the third question is, when you're the only designer in a business, how do you convince leadership of its value? Well, I think this is a trick question. If you're the only designer in a business, then I don't think the leadership values design. Uh, well, I, the one exception I see is, well, if the three of us were starting a business and I'm the sole designer, um, but uh, I'd say that uh, in order for design to be valued, that there wouldn't be a sole designer. I mean, even from the very beginning, there should be someone who is responsible for uh, knitting or the sort of managerial aspects of design and making sure uh, the design is valued and is uh, a, an active participant in product development. And then there's the creative aspect of it, um, the, the part where uh, they actually design and help develop the product. So I'd say the real question is uh, if uh, leadership value design, 
there wouldn't be just a single designer. I think that's fair. The next question is, how should designers measure and present the results of their work at a business? Uh, I think that there's no single answer to that as well. Uh, it depends on who the audience is. Uh, and so if I were to present the value of design, say to an engineering partner uh, versus say someone from finance, uh, then I would present the value of design uh, in two very different ways. And this goes back to why I think it's important that um, there are designers uh, who are very strong in terms of uh, the operational aspects of design, um, because it's really about speaking with authority and credibility and framing design in the terms that are valuable to their respective audiences. So we can end with this last question. As the purpose of design continues to evolve, what are some roles or methodologies that you think might emerge over the next five years? Well, if, if you asked me that question five years ago, yeah. I wouldn't have foreseen uh, what's happening today. But one thing that I do feel strongly about uh, is the notion of uh, designers learning how to code. Um, I think by uh, embracing a prototyping culture, it removes these layers of abstraction between what the product intent or the design intent is uh, and what its possibilities are. And the reason why I'm calling out code specifically is if you look 20, 30 years ago, there was a similar debate about whether designers should even be using computers. Right. And today it's just kind of a de facto standard. And I'd argue that code is just another tool. That designers aren't trying to be engineers, but it is just another tool in our toolkit to be better designers. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Thank, well, thank you, you so much, August. Thank you. It was Thanks. a real pleasure. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests, go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us, you can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you. We'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us talk to us. We want to converse with you. Uh, we're not going to leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've got to check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.